the pulse of the nation can be detected by taking the political temperature of Americans, especially in an election year full of high blood pressure. Today's guest, David Wasserman, is the senior editor of the Cook Political Report and one of the top election forecasters in the nation. Nate Silver said Wasserman's knowledge of the nooks and crannies of political geography may come seem like a local. Chuck Todd said he's pretty much the only person you need to follow on election night. Buckle up, America, for the political journey of a lifetime. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. We look what's going on. I mean, my God. This was it. The kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. Well, David, welcome to the show. You're coming to us from Sanibel, which is one of the chosen places on earth, as far as I'm concerned, as a Floridian. You're with John O'Hanlon, my partner today. We have a Democrat, we have a Republican, and we have a prognosticator. That's the role you're playing as you try to figure out what the hell is going on in American politics today. And I'd like to start by playing a little clip from the New Hampshire primary night where Nikki Haley had one take on the world and Donald Trump quite another. You've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. And the next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. She forgot one thing. Next week, it's Nevada. Next week, it's Nevada. It's not South Carolina. We love South Carolina, but next week, it's Nevada. Okay, you talk about showmanship. There you go. John, take it away. Yeah, sure. Hey, David, good to be with you. Looking forward to our chat here and sharing a few laughs as well and getting some insights. Well, things certainly got rocking in the Granite State. We had an incumbent Democratic president who's not on the ballot, one with a write-in. On the ballot was a relatively unknown, still not sure he's known very well. We've got the winner of the Republican primary is splitting his time between campaigns in the courtroom. And as we just saw on the uh, tape here, the second finisher of the Republican primary is returning to her home state of South Carolina for a primary where she trails badly or significantly in the polls. Can you help make sense of what this means or how this can help us look into the future and how this campaign is going to continue to develop? Well, first off, thank you for having me. And I'm afraid that you need more than a Democrat, a Republican, and a prognosticator to understand the 2024 election. You also need a gerontologist, a legal procedure expert. So we're short a few people here. However, we're all trying to make sense of an unprecedented election year on many levels. The Republican race is fundamentally not competitive. New Hampshire is as good as it's going to get for Nikki Haley. It is crossroads of all of her best support groups, moderates, independents, soft Democrats who crossed over to vote, college-educated voters. And 
Yet the results are instructive in several ways. First off, you know, I recall on election night 2022, New Hampshire was the first indicator of the night that MAGA style candidates were being penalized by independent voters and Democrats were on track for a better performance than we expected, certainly a better performance than the initial results from Florida indicated. And I do think the areas where Haley is strongest in these primaries are also probably the areas where Joe Biden's support is likeliest to hold up in November. Because if I had to venture to guess, more Haley voters will end up voting for Joe Biden than Donald Trump based on just the, you know, the people who voted in New Hampshire. Of course, South Carolina's electorate looks a lot more conservative, looks a lot more like like Iowa's electorate than New Hampshire's. And that's true for most Republican electorates around the country. So, you know, Haley really faces a fork in the road here. If she's looking at this rationally, which is hard to say at this point, the party has been taken over by Donald Trump. And, and that's been true for some time. I don't think she has a future as a Trump antagonist in the Republican Party. Does she bury the hatchet or does she continue on a path where maybe she is an independent force to be reckoned with at some point in the future? It would be very interesting to see what would happen if Nikki Haley were, let's say, the no labels candidate for president against two very old nominees who are highly unpopular with the broader electorate. Of course, I don't think that'll happen this year. But it's an interesting hypothetical. I share that perspective, actually, David. I was thinking she's burning the Republican bridges behind her. She wouldn't do that without a sense of mission ahead and an independent path, whether it could be a no labels candidacy this time or something downstream would certainly make sense. So back in 2016, I'd like to say where it all began, the Trump era began. You wrote how Trump could win the White House while losing the popular vote. You wrote that piece a couple months before the election. And damn it, that didn't happen just that way. He loses the popular vote by three million. He wins the presidential election based on the Electoral College, leaving Hillary Clinton and many Democrats calling an illegitimate election, which, of course, was revisited in reverse four years later by Republicans on Democrats. What is it about Donald Trump that makes him a little bit more difficult, possibly, to kind of figure out? Because he clearly has cut from an entirely different cloth. That's right. And it's difficult to game out because on one level, he's not a genuine conservative. He's more of an independent chaos agent who appealed to a lot of independent and anti-institutionalist voters in 2016 and 2020. By the way, came quite close in 2020 winning re-election. It's still amazing the stranglehold he has over the Republican electorate, considering he's you know genuine conservative in the same sense that Outback Steakhouse is an authentic Australian restaurant. And the motto of Outback is no rules just right. I would say that with Trump, He's very dismissive of rules, and he's not that far right. He has not espoused plans to overhaul entitlements. He has not emphasized the wedge social issues that plagued Republicans with secular blue-collar voters, particularly women, for a long time. Abortion and same-sex marriage. The onus is on Democrats to elevate abortion as an issue in the 2024 campaign because Trump isn't talking about it very much, except when he brags about appointing three Supreme Court justices who voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. But he is defined more by his lack of ideology and his his flexibility when it comes to policy is something that a lot of independent voters don't mind. 
David, you touched on uh, some of the different issues in play in this presidential election. And, you know, we've got the, the migration. We've got the economy. We've also got a lot of events taking place in the United States and around the world. Are there any issues, unforeseen issues or events that uh, you foresee that will uh, have an impact on the elections? Donald Trump's basic message in this campaign is when I was president, things cost less and people around the, the world were not starting wars. I would expect that the economy and foreign policy are dominant issues in this campaign. I think immigration is poised to be a bigger issue than it was in 2020. And by the way, one of the reasons I think Donald Trump was able to perform better with Hispanic voters than he did in 2016 was that the conversation was less about immigration and offensive things that Trump had said about immigrants and more about the economy and lockdowns during COVID. In 2024, we see Biden underwater on the issue of immigration by 32 points right now. I believe a Democrat can be underwater on the issue by 20 points and still win a national election. It's not Democrat's strong suit, but I don't think you can afford to be underwater by 32 and still win a national campaign. Doesn't this look to you, David, like a change election? We, we, we throw that out almost every election, but you know we have the country that's kind of down on itself. We had the right, wrong direction question, which is always like 65%, 70% wrong direction, which basically says people are very pessimistic about what's ahead and elections are always about the future. And yet this is an unusual election because in a way it's a referendum on two presidents, one that was and one that is. Does that change how 24 might play out versus 2016, where I think that was a change election, it was a referendum on the system? Donald Trump played the outsider card to it fairly well. And, and I think that's the reason, more than anything else, I think he prevailed over Hillary Clinton. In that election, voters were also highly dissatisfied with the choices they had in front of them. And I think you, you are seeing a desire for change in the electorate this year, but it is a desire for change from the candidates that are being offered to voters. And if you did have a third party option who, let's say, defected from one of the major parties and was much younger than Biden and Trump, then I do think that they would have a credible chance at, at taking the kind of market share ultimately that RFK is taking in national polls. But I do think that right now he is more of a parking place for dissatisfaction than a true owner of that support we're seeing for him in, in those trial heats. You've written some recent articles on a few congressional races. Lauren Bobert out in Colorado. I think it's Colorado 3 now. You've written about Scott Perry up in Pennsylvania 10, who's the subject of a lawsuit. You've got a Democratic Party where it's uh, uh, stalwarts in its base, uh, the black community, the Hispanic community, uh, younger voters are seeming less than enthusiastic about the prospects or identification with the Democratic Party. What are some of the races you see in play right now at the congressional level, maybe the Senate, that are interesting? Well, perhaps we can go one by one uh, with the with the chambers. I do think that Democrats have a better chance at the House this year than they do the Senate, even though current control is the opposite. In the House, Democrats only need to gain five seats, which which doesn't sound like much. Uh, and there are 18 Republicans in districts that Biden carried last time around, and only five Democrats in districts that Trump carried last time around. 
if Trump is ahead at the presidential level or if it's even tied, I, I would bet that Republicans will hold their majority by some margin. Um, maybe there's little net change in the House, but uh, I don't see a scenario where where Trump would win and then Democrats would flip control of the House. The key races are really going to be in the states where maps were drawn in a fairly neutral way. You know, we're going to have next to no competitive races in Texas where <laughs> Republicans gerrymandered the map or Illinois where Democrats gerrymandered the map. But instead, California and New York are together about half of the toss up column on our list. And we only see 23 races out of 435 as toss ups. Uh, and so you know, we've got 210 seats that at least lean towards Republicans, 202 seats that at least lean towards Democrats. That means Democrats would need, from today's standpoint, to win about two-thirds of those toss-up races to, to win control. So it's going to come down to seats such as Mike Garcia's seat in northern L.A. County, where Democrats have a new candidate there, George Whitesides, a, a former Virgin Galactic CEO who's spending a lot of his own personal money. It's going to come down to the Central Valley of California, uh, where we have a couple of rematches brewing, Adam Gray against John Duarte in the Modesto area, and then Rudy Salas, most likely against David Valadeo in the southern portion of the Central Valley around Bakersfield. And then, you know, in New York, the big question is whether Democrats are going to be able to redraw that congressional map. They have sued to essentially permit the legislature, which has Democratic supermajorities, to re-gerrymander that map. And if they're successful, that would help them offset what Republicans have done in North Carolina and put Hakeem Jeffries a few steps closer to becoming speaker. You know, you've written a lot of pieces about reapportionment, and it's always a hot inside topic of debate, right? Redistricting, reapportionment. How important is that going to be in impacting the ultimate verdict on who controls the House after this cycle? Well, the House has really become a game of inches. And with such a slim margin, either direction the last few cycles, every one of these line changes takes on outsized importance, particularly when we have fewer competitive seats than we had two or three decades ago. And Republicans knew they had an insurance policy in North Carolina where the state Supreme Court flipped control in 2022. Republicans are going to gain three or four seats in North Carolina, depending on the outcome of one toss-up race. By the way, that's a fascinating race in northeastern North Carolina, where Democrat Don Davis is a moderate Presbyterian minister, Air Force veteran, former small town mayor fits that seat really well, but Republicans have drawn him into a very tough district. Obviously, the Supreme Court last June interpreted the Voting Rights Act to mean that there should be additional black majority seat in Alabama, and that has led to new black majority seats in Alabama and Louisiana. So that is a gain of two for, for Democrats. But the ultimate outcome of this re-redistricting cycle will depend on New York. Uh, if Democrats are able to draw that map to their advantage, then they would come out maybe one or two seats ahead from this re-redistricting. If not, then Republicans will end up netting a seat or two from re-redistricting. You know how New York always likes to be the center of the world. Apparently, they're going to be the center of reapportionment that may impact control of the House and the world. I wanted to ask you another question. You know, on your radar, what races would people look at that if they went a certain way, 
would basically say how the entire election cycle is going. In other words, are there a couple of races where if a Republican beats a Democrat or vice versa, you know this has been a good night for one side or the other? Sure. Uh, you know, I'll be looking at you know Virginia, uh, and there's an open seat at the 7th District where Abigail Spanberger is leaving to run for governor. The parties both have uh, competitive primaries. We'll be looking at the Virginia Beach District that Jen Kiggins, a Republican, flipped in 2022. You know, if Democrats were to be winning there, that would be a very good sign for their chances for the House. But we still think Kiggins is the favorite. Um, we'll be looking at Michigan, where we've got a pair of open seats that are Republican pickup opportunities. One is in Flint, where Dan Kildee is retiring. The other is in Lansing, where Alyssa Slotkin is running for Senate. On the non-federal level, how about governor's races? The governor's race to watch this cycle is in North Carolina, where Republicans seem poised to nominate Mark Robinson, a very controversial lieutenant governor. Then Democrats are nominating Attorney General Josh Stein. That's going to be a marquee contest. And the pattern that we've seen in North Carolina is that voters seem to be more open to supporting Democrats at the gubernatorial level than the federal level. And Roy Cooper has done well, even as the legislature has brushed him aside on plenty of policy. Voters like the idea of having a check on a legislature that's quite lopsided. That could work in Stein's favor, even as Trump is the favorite to win North Carolina and Republicans pick up House seats there. In the U.S. Senate, which is, of course, at a razor thin margin, just like the House is, and where it seems to be a more favorable cycle on paper for Republicans in terms of more Republicans in a position of challenging more incumbent Democrats, where do you see things kind of shaking out? Democrats would have to run the table to hold on to the Senate, and it, it is very, very unlikely that they can. Uh, they would need to, to win every competitive race, plus hold the presidency and have a you know tiebreaker at 50-50, because right now they're 51-49. They're going to lose West Virginia. So you essentially start out at 50-50. And Joe Manchin, I don't think he even would have won had he run. Sherrod Brown and John Tester are at remarkably strong approval ratings, given how pro-Trump their states have voted, particularly Tester. And the question will be how well Brown and and Tester can define their Republican opponents before they're able to, to define themselves. It looks like Tim Sheehy will be the candidate in Montana for Republicans. Mm -hmm. Bernie Marino is the favorite in Ohio in that primary. And they're both very wealthy nominees running against populist Democrats. So those races in particular are going to be tests of, of whether whether popular incumbents can still localize their races. I tend to think Tester might have a better opportunity because he's in a smaller state. But isn't that like a Trump plus 25 state? Keep in mind, you know, Tester, his most recent morning consult approval was 61 percent. Right. Uh, so, yes, very tough for Tester. We've seen small state senators do well winning crossover votes because they have a more personal relationship with their voters. People like Susan Collins in Maine, where the dynamic ran the other way. I think that's harder to do when, when you're a senator from a big state. And then Arizona, uh, where 
you do have the, the potential for a genuinely competitive three-way race. Right. The question I have is, you know, if cinema does run as an independent, does the anti-Lake vote consolidate by November? And I think that's a very open question. You see registration for independents or non-declared voters or undeclared voters on the rise. You see predictions and projections that they're going to overtake registration of both Democrats and Republicans in a lot of key states, including Florida. How is that going to possibly lead us down the inevitable path of having a three-party system versus two? I wouldn't hold your breath that we're going to have a competitive three-party system. Trump is the closest thing we've had to an independent candidate for president. He managed to commandeer a political party and remake it in his image, even though he didn't neatly share the orthodoxy of the party. And now there is a market for, for an alternative to the two nominees, but they don't agree on who the alternative should be. So... Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is motivating her fans to become more civic minded. The pop star urging fans on social media to register to vote and Swifties, they answer the call. Vote.org says more than 35,000 people registered to vote after the singer posted a link to the site on her Instagram page. In her post, Swift encouraged fans to raise their voices and to be heard this election year. You can't talk about politics or even football, John, right, without talking Taylor Swift. And I think she put out an Instagram post that led to like 30,000 young voters signing up to vote on Vote.org. Could Taylor Swift or others like her actually have impact in any of the target places that in a very, very tight election, David, could actually make a difference? Well, look, the presidential race is going to be driving everything, but we may not see the same type of turnout that we did in 2020. I think we're headed for kind of a middle turnout scenario, whereas 2020 was very high. 2016 was on the lower side. And there are kind of two key groups that are up for grabs. I would say the first is a very high engagement type of voter who is a Nikki Haley voter, essentially um, someone who doesn't like Joe Biden or Donald Trump. They always show up to vote. It's the kind of voter that that we saw in New Hampshire and a lot of a lot of the towns that Haley carried. I think those voters are kind of politically homeless, but may be more open to supporting Biden than Trump. Now, the second type of voter are low politically engagement voters, voters who, who don't consume a lot of political news and they skew younger the skew non-college educated, perhaps a little bit more non-white, a little more male uh, than the rest of the electorate. And, you know, you have young voters who identify more with progressive positions who are very down on Joe Biden. And that's where the celebrity factor might have an impact. If Taylor Swift convinces voters that LGBT rights reproductive choice are on the ballot in 2024 in a way that Joe Biden and traditional Democratic leaders and messengers can't reach. That could have a modest benefit for Biden and down-ballot Democratic candidates. But I think you saw in Tennessee a few years ago the limits of her political reach. Don't you think that the president, President Biden, needs like a shot in the arm from somewhere, David? I mean, 
even to get his base, his normal core base together? Because you rightfully point out, I think, we've seen this in polls and we've seen this anecdotally, young voters in particular, but even to some extent, uh, black Americans, Hispanics are not as excited. Not that they're coming, they're off of and down on Biden. They're just not excited by him. What does the president have to do to try to reconstitute the energy of his own base? He has to make the election about Trump and about chaos versus stability, which is something that's very hard to do when you are the incumbent in the race. I don't think most Democrats fully appreciate how little margin for error or how little room for erosion there is versus 2020. In 2020, Donald Trump was at a 41 percent approval rating. Joe Biden, his favorability was still slightly above water. And Trump was the incumbent who was broadly perceived to have mishandled a pandemic. And yet the election was almost a tie. Uh, Joe Biden functionally won by 42,915 votes out of 159.6 million cast. That was his cumulative margin of victory in the three closest states in the Electoral College. So Biden cannot afford more than half a point of erosion in support from 2020 and still win. And yet, you know, we are seeing glaring weaknesses relative to 2020 among younger voters, among Hispanic and Black voters. So to get them back and to get them motivated, Biden has to highlight the the positions on which Trump is unpopular. And there are, there are three things that Trump has said in the past several months that allow Democratic ads to write themselves. And the first is, you know, boasting about appointing uh, the justice who overturned Roe v. Wade reviving talk of repealing Obamacare, uh, and then, you know, also talking about pardoning January 6th rioters. And, you know, that's unpopular with 62% of voters. Democrats have to meet voters where they are rather than where they wish they were. Uh, that's something I think, you know, James Carville uh, was very good at back in the day. And if Democrats are trying to frame the 2024 election as you know, the future of democracy is at stake, you know, persuadable and independent voters and, and that younger uh, demographic I'm talking about that's less politically engaged, they're not really seeing the world that way. Mm. But they don't like the idea of pardoning people who attacked police officers. Well, we have a Democrat, a Republican and a prognosticator. And I think what I'm going to watch out for, by the way, this cycle if you see Taylor Swift starting to hit all the target states, the swing states, know the Democrats have something to foot, and she's right in the head of that parade. Thank you so much, David, for spending time with us. We'd love to have you back late in the cycle to see exactly where things are at that point and where this country is heading. You've done an amazing job of keeping not just people on the inside of the process in the know about what's happening, but in encouraging people, frankly, to get out there and vote. And we can't have enough David Wasserman's out there and your expertise in, in reading polls and assessing what is really going on under the radar is going to be something everyone in the country will continue to watch. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, David. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park.